Welcome to the 401 Jake Show. This week's episode, we have the one and only Josh Itzo. Now, if you're in the phone case space and you don't know Josh, this is the podcast for you. He dropped so many amazing tips and ideas, things that he did to grow his practice from basically he started in 2004 and grew it to four and a half billion dollars. And he learned a lot along the way, and now he's telling people about it and sharing them with, with the world. I promise you, if you actually implement the things Josh talks about today, you'll be successful in the 401k space. Enjoy the episode. Let's go. And if you haven't heard of Josh, you're probably missing out because he's putting a ton of great content out. About four and dollars or so. Yep. Amazing. So Josh definitely knows what he's doing. Over that time, he's written two books. He's um, got a podcast. He's created Fiduciary U. He's got you know a whole extensive background in our space and one of the leaders and influencers. And I'm really excited to talk to Josh today and let him kind of give us some ideas of how he did that and things that you can take back to your practice. So Josh, with that, go ahead and give us a quick, what did I miss? What, what should I have added to that intro? No, I mean, I think you, uh, I think you, you nailed it. We, uh, it, it, the industry's come a long way over the past 15 or 16, 17 years. But um, yeah, we started in 2004. It was just um, my, my best friend and I, uh, he was at Merrill Lynch. I was at Morgan Stanley. We were 27 and 29 and uh, all private client. And we struck out on our own with about $15 million in assets. Um, I didn't take a salary for nine months. Found out the day before I resigned from Morgan Stanley that um, my wife was pregnant with our first child. And uh, we were in like an 800 square foot office and we just kind of hustled. And uh, I fell into the qualified plan space in about two, that late 2005, early 2006. And um, just decided to kind of go for it. And uh, yeah, since then, we, we've got about a little bit over a billion dollars on the private client side and about four and a half billion dollars on the, the, the corporate retirement side and 130 plans, um, 50,000 participants or so. And we've grown from two people to about 25. So, so, so Josh, that, I mean, that to me blows my mind. I'd love to hear kind of, I wish I was recording a video of how you took the firm to that level. And I think a lot of us in the group are kind of in a similar situation as me where it's, it's me and I'm an operations person and we're really working hard and we're growing. Now we're at that point, we have to add more people. How did you take it to that next step? Like once you got obviously some plans won and you started moving ahead, what was the next part that really kind of made you shift to hiring more people or how you continue to grow up to 25? Yeah. So, you know, the reality, and we all know this is like winning 401k plan business is super hard, right? I mean, it's just, it, it's hard. Uh, yeah. It's not easy. And, and the early years were really, really tough. You know, you mentioned, I, I wrote a book in 2008 called Fixing the 401k. Um, if, if JD Carlson was on here right now, he'd be making fun of me because he's been busting my chops nonstop about mentioning books. Uh, I wrote another one in 2020 called The Fiduciary Formula, which is a much better book. But, you know, early on, I think the key to building is you really need to think about systems and you need to think about scale and you need to think about leverage. Um, you know, the biggest challenge that we all have, especially when we're getting started, um, is that we over-service our early clients. And I totally over-serviced kind of my early clients. Early on, it was just me. In fact, it took me almost five years to hire um, my first dedicated person. And so, you know, I was doing everything. I was chief cook and bottle washer and, you know, I was everything from going out and trying to prospect and then onboarding. And then, you know, I was, uh, uh, you know, running all the reports and doing all the analysis and all the meeting minute. And it was, I mean, it was a grind. It was a grind. 
uh, early on. You know, I think one of the most important things from my perspective, though, is you need to um, you need to get in the mind of plan sponsors. You know, a lot of times we do a lot of work for them that, quite frankly, they don't, they don't really see a whole lot of value in. At the end of the day, a plan sponsor wants to know that they're in good shape, right? That they can sleep well at night, that they're dotting the I's, crossing the T's. And I do think a lot of times what we do is we sell kind of information and we sell data, but what clients really want are insights. They have other jobs to do. They have businesses they have to get back to. When I started, because it was only me, and I would, I would probably encourage everybody to do this. Like if you don't have, if, when you have a lot more support, it's a different story. But when it's just you, early on, what I decided was the best way to, to, to drive leverage, because I am all about leverage. That's why I got in the 401k space in the first place. We were doing private client stuff and chasing rich people around. And you know, I like rich people just as much as I like people who aren't rich. But I felt like I could scale my impact and my significance where I thought I gave good advice. And if I could give you know, a company good advice that they followed, that could impact 100, 200, 500, 1,000 people. And for me, that's really what I wanted to do. And so I started my whole practice around fiduciary governance. And this was like 2006, 2007. So everybody talks about that now, but back then, not a lot of people were talking about it. And I was, all fo I was totally focused on how do I create high performance retirement committees? Because even still, wellness is super popular and I'm all for wellness. But at the end of the day, 99% of the decisions of consequence are controlled by the committee, right? It's the three or the five or the seven people who make those decisions. They choose the vendors, they choose the fees, they choose the investments, um, they drive the bus. And so, you know, when you're starting out, I think focusing at the committee level is a really good idea because it allows you to give leverage. A lot of advisors want to do participant work. I can just tell you that's like not profitable and it's just going to suck your time up. It's, it's worthwhile. But, you know, I think the smart thing I did early on was I really took a top down approach instead of a bottom up approach. And I started with, you know, I started with committees. And what I really try to do is I systematized and streamlined my entire service model. So, you know, I covered the same deck every single quarter with clients. Um, and I taught our firm how to do that. And, you know, we would do I would say it would be 95 percent the same for every client and 5 percent would be client specific. Um, that was one thing. I streamlined my fund lineups. Our fund lineups look almost exactly the same across every single plan so that our due diligence needs uh, are, you know, are, uh, you know, a lot, a lot more streamlined. So those are just, those are just a few of the thoughts. I think what you need to, to consider is where are you going to get the most um, bang for your buck? What are the top, what are the, what are the five things you could do in a committee meeting that can give you, um, the most leverage with the least the least effort and still allow you to deliver insights because at the end of the day that's all committee members care about and i've actually got some thoughts in terms of like how you run better committees where you can get committee members in and out but put them in a position to make decisions because at the end of the day that's all they want to know hey are we good is there anything that's on the radar that we need to know about do we have to make any decisions great let's get back to work so i don't know if that makes sense but that's kind of the way i've i've try to, to streamline and, and, and approach it over the years. Yeah, no, that totally does. And what was the kind of the phase where you, where you actually added more team to help you? Like, was that a hard like transition to, to basically systematize the process that everyone else would follow with the committees? Yeah. You know, it, it, so there, it, I think it, it, it depends. The, the short answer is yes. Cause I'm a kind of a, you know, Early on, I was a control freak and I wanted things done the way I wanted them done. And so I think what's gonna happen, what you need to realize is the only way you're gonna scale 
is by bring is by building out a team. It just at the end of the day, plan sponsors. It's it's part of the reason why private wealth is so much more profitable than retirement is because retirement you tend to meet with clients more often. You know, clients are asking us to do more. Uh, rather than less, you know, I will say this, I don't know if we have any record keepers on here and I, you know, I have a ton of respect for you guys, but record keeping services and admin, in my opinion, the service levels are dropping. And so what is happening, like we spend a lot more time on operational calls monthly with clients, helping them work through things because they're having service issues and that's super high valuable stuff to do, but it's just, it, it's, it's not that, it's not that profitable. And so I think one of the most important things is you have to realize as you build out one, you're not going to scale if you treat every client as an individual and you do things different for every single client. There are certain things you want to do, maybe five, 10% of the relationship. The way I like to think about it is you um, uh, standardize the process, you customize the relationship. And that's the, that's what we talk about a lot. Standardized process, customized relationship. Um, I think the other thing is when you hire people, the most important thing you can do is you have to invest in them and you have to let them apprentice under you and you have to teach them to do the things the way you want them to do them. And you need to be able to provide, you know, people don't like accountability, right? It's tough. You don't like to hold people accountable, but accountability is not somebody, something you do to someone. It's something you do for them. And so I think it's really important when you get team members, you want to train them. You're going to slow down for a little bit. You're going to invest in really getting them ramped up. But once you get a team member who can start to actually take stuff off your plate, it then creates capacity and capacity creates leverage and leverage creates scale. That, I mean, that's amazing. So uh, that's what I struggle with is trying to figure out like that, that, I mean, that quote right there, you know, say that again, that you said customize. So you, you standardize the process, standardize the process, customize the relationship yeah and power. I mean, you, have to create, you have to create capacity because capacity creates leverage and leverage creates scale and that's the other thing i would say is you know I, it might have been a rich poor rich dad poor dad you know there was a quote something along the lines of wealthy people invest and have an abundance mindset and poor people save and have a scarcity mindset and i think that can apply to businesses. I'll give you a little origin story. When we first started our firm, right? We went moved into our first office space and I'm kind of a techie guy. Um, and we needed to get it wired with cat five cable for internet. And we had it pulled into the server room, which was like a, I don't know, a 10 by a 10 square foot thing. And I called to get quotes for how much it would cost to put in these internet drops. And it was 175 bucks a drop or 125 bucks. So I did it myself instead. I pulled all the cable and installed all the cable. And you know what? I probably spent a thousand dollars of my time for something that I could have spent like 500 bucks for. And so I, I bring that up is because a lot of times, one of the great decisions we've made over the years is you always wanna hire ahead of the curve, not behind the curve, right? When you hire ahead of the curve, you create capacity. And as advisors, you wanna delegate um, uh, there, there's this, if anybody's ever heard of the Eisenhower matrix, um, Dwight D Eisenhower, this is how he made decisions. And it's like a four, it's a two by two box. And he has the, you know, the urgent and the important and the not urgent and the not important and things that are urgent and important. You do now things that are, um, important, but not urgent you schedule 
things that are uh, uh, not urgent and not, but important. No, what is it? P things that are. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Urgent, but not important. You delegate. And then if it's not important and not urgent, you just, you get rid of it. And so I think that you could apply that to profitability, right? Things that are important, but not urgent or important, but, but, um, not that profitable. You should be delegating that to other people. As an advisor, you need to know the value of your time. Just because you can do things doesn't mean that you should. And so that's where investing in your business, that kind of like abundance mindset, too often advisors wait to invest because they think they're saving money, but they're actually costing themselves money because they're spending their time, which is much more valuable on things. You know, if your hourly rate, you need to know your hourly rate. If your hourly rate's a hundred bucks an hour or 150 or 200 bucks an hour, or 500 bucks an hour, don't be doing things that you could pay somebody $40 an hour or $50 an hour or hire an intern and, and, and pay them 20 bucks an hour. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of advisors make um, is that they don't invest in their business and they don't invest until they're after the curve. And that's when they're just frazzled and they're hitting the wall and they don't have capacity. So, so what's the first investment they should make? Like say when you start back 2004 and it was just you and your partner, that what, what was like, take us through that step. Cause that's what I'm trying to get at is everybody's struggling is what point do they hire somebody? Because yeah. they're all trying to just get plans to pay themselves to be their family. But what, yeah. at what point does it make more sense to make that leap and make that investment and how do you do it? Yeah, you know, that's a great question because the economics of kind of every firm obviously looks different. Um, yeah, you know, I think the first person, you know, from my perspective is you need to get some type of relationship manager, not just an admin who, right? So think about like the, what are the time sup things, right? It is trying to, you know, update your due diligence tool, download data or run fee benchmarking reports, um, preparing presentations, um, you know, taking me taking meeting minutes, you know, I used to do all of this, you know, my stuff myself, um, probably like, you know, like a lot of folks when you don't have when there's a lot of things to do, but you don't have a lot of, you know, a lot of help, you, you do everything yourself. Yeah, you know, in, in my opinion, though, having a good like right hand person who can prep all the things for you for meetings, right, that they can they can run the investment reports and download the data, and they can get the decks ready. And they can either come to a meeting with you or they can, you know, dial in and have them take, you know, the minutes and the action items. And then they can kind of follow up with those action items. I think that's a really critical hire because what that frees you up to do as an advisor is you should be in meetings, delivering insights, making recommendations and figuring out like what the decision points are moving forward. And then you should be out, you know, prospecting and networking and trying to find new clients. We want lead advisors at Greenspring. We've always said their, their job is to make strategic decisions and then develop new relationships and deepen existing ones. That's all we want lead advisors, uh, lead advisors doing. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Uh, yeah, being able to give the advice, but then have people to basically execute on all that advice, right? You need, you need people to help kind of implement and, and kind of project manage, if you will, uh, in my opinion. Cause that's where people get bogged. That's where people get bogged down and they chase their tail and, you know, um, and then what does that do? That means you don't have time to, you know, uh, to go out. You don't have time to look for new clients to prospect. You don't have time to focus on really strategic issues 
or clients, you know, when you help them through, you know, the important things. So that would be my two cents. Can I ask, this is something I've drive home with a lot of advisors. I always ask what their niche is, who they're helping, who their target client is. Did you do that early on? Did you do that now? Like where, what's your feeling towards niching down to a certain industry? Yeah, no, I didn't do it. Uh, and absolutely, if I was to start right now, uh, again, I would totally niche. Um, I think the future, just in general in business, is niching is niching down. It, it's, you know, people think 401k is a niche. That's not a niche. Um, you know, being a, hey, I'm a 401k advisor that works with uh, mid-size, you know, engineering firms. That's a niche. Or I work with dental practices or, you know, orthopedic pra practices. That's, um, that's a niche. Early on when we're trying to grow, we will take We'll take anything and everything, right? Any you know, revenue is revenue, but you know I do think it's getting harder. When I first started, like our story, um, and, and the story everybody tells now, I will say one of my strengths. You know, I have a lot of shortcomings and weaknesses, but one of my strengths is I'm a good trend spotter, and I'm a good. I'm not a great original thinker, but I'm a very good curator of of information, and I know how to make the complex simple and how to bring together narratives and. We told a very different, differentiated story 15 years ago. I mean, I've been telling the same story around fiduciary governance, fiduciary training. I still have the I did fiduciary training for clients in 2007. Um, you know, meeting meeting minutes and investment due diligence, not just fee benchmarking. I have a whole different idea about you know fees, but you know negotiation from that perspective. I did a lot of things that I told a very different story back then, and quite frankly, it was a really hard story to tell because nobody was telling it and plan sponsors had a hard time really understanding. The challenge now is everybody says the exact same thing. If you go on even a non-specialist website, if they say they do retirement services and then maybe they're using an RPAG or something like that, right? Vendor benchmarking, fee benchmarking, investment due diligence, financial wellness, everybody says the same thing. And that's really, really hard. When you sit in a committee meeting and or in a, in a finals meeting and you're saying the same thing as everybody else, plan sponsors, what are they gonna do? What's the lowest cost? What's the least risk? And so I think it's really important to uh, touch all the same points, but say them in a unique, different way. And I'll give you a quick little example. And then I, let me just answer, you know, answer your question. I think if you niche, you can get really, you can start to understand clients' businesses. Like I have a lot of engineering firms and a lot of law firms as clients. And I know their businesses. I know how their people think. I stay up to date on trends in their industry. I'm much more of a business advisor to the clients I've worked with over the years where we sit in committee meetings and invariably it starts to talk about their business and what they're dealing with and with you know personnel and with recruiting and talent. And so I think that's the power of a niche is that you can really start to understand their business and you're not talking about just their 401k because then you're just a vendor. But now you start to talk about, hey, what are you trying to accomplish strategically with your business? And I just read this article, you know, about, you know, things that that there's a talent shortage over here or compensation and benefit issues, you know. And so how can we uh, reposition the 401k plan and your match structure so that when you're recruiting people, you know, you can win from a talent standpoint. I think those that's what the power of a niche is. And then you could just sit at the end of the day. Advisors spend too much time and I'm guilty of it. We want to talk about bits and bytes of data and this and that. And really what you should be talking about is case studies and proof points. Hey, I once had a client ran into an issue just like you. And here's how we solved it. 
Or, you know, I had another client that had really similar demographics and we implemented automatic enrollment, you know, at 6% and we did a retroactive sweep uh, for people who were under 6% and bumped into the default. And then we put an escalation of 1% up to 15% and we did a target date fund re-enrollment. And we took over three years participation from 67% to 89%. And we took target date fund utilization from 22% to 78%. And we, you know, drove fees down from, you know, 72 basis points to 39 basis points over that three year period. Like those are the types of things that, in my opinion, win the day with plant sponsors because they know like you've been here before. You've sat in the seat. You can deliver. I tell people all the time and, and in the fiduciary formula, I said, you want to know whether or not an advisor knows what they're doing is you start asking them questions about case studies and about issues and you see whether or not they can tell you a story you think is believable and that they've actually come across it before. I love, I tell a lot of times in my career, I've gone into, I said, ask me any question you want because I've seen everything. Ask me any question or any issue you've dealt with and I'll tell you how we've handled it in the past. And it's much more of an organic consulting conversation instead of, okay, now flip to page 34 on the deck and let's yeah. talk to you about our investment due diligence methodology. And so I, I, I talk too much, obviously. Let me give you one more example. And this was- No, a keep going. I like, those are really good advice that we all need to hear. A lesson I learned in 2011, we had a, a, acquired another firm and they had been using RPAG. And RPAG is a great system and great tools. And we were FI360 users. And I went into a finals presentation in- um, uh, uh, in DC for like a, like a nonprofit association. And uh, we were the third firm to present and we went in and for whatever reason, I was trying out just the RPAG stuff. And we get to talk about the investment process. And one of the committee members goes, oh yeah, yeah, that's the same scorecard thing or whatever as the other two. Yep, we're good, let's move on. And I did not win that engagement. And I walked out of the meeting and I said, I am never using, like I am branding all of our stuff proprietary from then on. And I came up with the clarity quotient and clarity with the K and got a registered trademark. And so we've got the clarity due diligence program and our wellness program is called Clarity at Work Now. And I built a, a technology tool um, called the Clarity Quotient, which is a consulting tool that we used and everything is built around our, our brand. We use FI360 at Greenspring. And it's the same report as everybody else, but we branded it the Clarity Due Diligence Report. So that's another thing is I think niching, like you need to differentiate and stand apart. You need to touch on all the same things that everybody else does, but you need to change the conversation in a way that it, it, um, it makes you stand apart and be unique. And I think niching down is the way to do it. You only need 30, you need 25 to 50 I think 50 is the upper end to service well if you have a team, but you need 25 to 50 401k plans to have an amazing business and an amazing career. That is it. That's all you need. And um, that's it. And, and it sounds like it's a big deal and it's hard. It doesn't happen overnight. That's probably a five to seven year process. But I mean, think about that. You don't need thousands of clients. You need 25 to 50 plans. That, no, that's an amazing point to make because I think all of us are trying to just chase, chase, chase. We say yes to too many that are not really our niche, that are not our client fit, but we think, well, that's revenue, so we got to do it. And then we find ourselves running around doing all of it, 
Um, but I think what I what stood out what you that story you just told was defining your process so that it is yours. So the client knows where they fit into that process. So they know that you have a process and that they're a part of it. And then they feel more confident that you know what you're doing because it's not just on the fly. Like we're going to show up and, oh, you need something today. We'll do it. You know, it's that, which is very common for our industry. Just yep. reacting. Yeah. So, so and, you you remind, and you need to remind clients and Schleck, if anybody here knows Ann Schleck, who's, who's been a good friend and mentor of mine for years. Um, you know, she used to do a lot of consulting and then she sold to FI360 and she now has something called Inspired Meetings, which is like a turnkey education thing. Pretty cool. Um, but Ann Schleck was, was always had great advice. She's like, you need to, to, to do like a relationship summary report every year. Your clients are not going to remember throughout the year all the stuff that you do for them. You may think they will, but they're not. And so I think that's another thing in terms of, of expectation setting. And and I, this was actually really good. I see Matthew um, Jackson on here and he, he put out a video the other day in preparation for this actually. And he was just talking about expectation setting. And, you know, I think he is, is, is on point. You know, where you deliver value for clients is, and, and this is a, a, you know, from the beginning, this is one of the mantras that I instilled within our team was that, you know, this business is, is simple it's not easy, but the cornerstone is just to keep your promises and do what you say you're going to do. And so I think what's really important and what I've, we've always tried to do at Greenspring is set an expectation that we're going to do this, 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 and that. That's why this, this tool that I built called the Clarity Quotient was really cool is because it was like a diagnostic tool that outlined, and you could come up with things like this, but outline like, hey, here are all the areas. It's like a, a, like a project plan. And then measure your progress towards that over time. Hey, we said we were going to do these five strategic priorities, and these are the KPIs underneath that, and or the the you know the OKRs if you're in the tech world or whatever you want to say. But then always go back to we said we were going to do this, and here's where we are in progress, or here's what we accomplished. And at the end of the year, we do like a end of year review. Hey, here's all the different things that we did throughout the year from a communication standpoint. Did we do fee? You know, did we do a fee project? Uh, how many committee meetings did we have? You know, what what uh, advisors just they don't really do that. And that's why they kind of get pressure of whether or not they're they're, um, uh, you know, it's funny in my career. Valuable, right. Like they always worry that the client, are they doing enough? Do they need to lower fees? What else do I need to do to keep them happy? I, you, this will sound crazy, but I have never been pressed on my fees and I charge pretty premium fees. I've never been pressed on my fees a single time in my entire career. Not a single time. And I've never been put out to RFP a single time. Now I've lost some time, usually through M&A. But you know, the other thing I would say is like, I would just, and I'm a big aficionado around, I think fees are the fastest, quickest way. I've created a whole fee methodology, how you can be kind of heroes to clients. Um, clients love to save money. And if you're like that, if, if you're going to battle for them and helping them save money over time, and you put that in, in in uh, the right context for them. I'm a big believer in always put what you do in terms of context to clients so that they can see tangibly what value you're delivering. And then the other thing is too often we wanna be the hero as advisors. The best thing you can do is make your client the hero and make them a hero to their employees. And so I spend a lot of time, like when we renegotiate fees as an example, I come back and say, hey, just wanted you to know, we saw that the plan kind of got out of out of alignment, you know, with your record keeper. I hope it's okay. We went on your behalf. 
you know, we had a conversation, we renegotiated, you know, they're going to reduce fees by 15 K a year. We just need to get your approval. Is that okay? Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, I just want to give you, you know, kudos. You guys are doing such a great job making decisions about this plan. Like I'm putting them in a position to be a hero and I mean it. Um, but at the same time, they said, well, the only reason we did that, Josh, is like, we wouldn't have known to do that. You did that on our behalf. And so I do think it's really important to get your committees thinking about themselves as a team. And if you get them thinking about themselves as a team, then they're gonna start to value the incredibly purpose, purposeful work that they do. And you're gonna get them bought into the process. And I'm always trying to make my clients feel like they are the heroes. I wanna be the hero to them, but I wanna make them a hero to their employees. That makes so much sense, I love that. Um, I want to switch gears real quick. So we wrap up and then we'll have some questions. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Sean actually mentioned a great book, Dan by Dan Sullivan, Who Not How. So that's another good one to look at. But you've written two books and I'm curious, how hard was that? And was it was it a smart move? Did you Are you happy you did that? Did it lead to what you wanted? Uh, yeah. I, I always am curious from an advisor standpoint because I see some advisors more in the insurance space doing that. You're the first one I've really seen in the 401k space. So I'm just wondering how that's how that was worked out for you. Yeah, two best things I ever did in my career. I would say the podcast might wind up being the third. Um, so absolutely. Uh, is it hard? Yep. <laughs> it, 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 uh, uh, it, but here's the thing. It, it's not a, it's, it's kind of like working on your house. August 15th, 2008. It's called Fixing the 401k. In early mid 2007, I was just not having much success. I'd only want a handful of plants. My story was not really resonating. I wasn't telling it very well. And I got so frustrated that I went into my part, my co-founder's office, and I was like, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm done. 401k, forget it. I'm not doing it anymore. And he like talked me off the ledge. And I said, you know, the 401k industry is broken. I was like, people just don't get it. And I said, I'm going to write a book. And he laughed at me. And he's like, well, what are you going to call it? And I said, fixing the 401k because the 401k industry is broken. And he chuckled. Well, that night I went home and I created an outline. Hey, if I was going to write a book about 401k, these are the, what are the 12 chapters that would be in it? And I wrote an outline. And really what I was trying to do was to create, you know, my treatise. Now realize I didn't have a whole lot of, ex you know, experience. Like that book was written more around theory than actual experience. Like it, it was theory. Now I will say what I wrote about the industry kind of went towards. So people who read it now, even still, they're like, I can't believe you were talking about that stuff in 2008. Well, I had no idea. It just seemed like common sense to me, but writing that book was great. It came out, uh, in on August, 2015, I had, um, in October of 2000 or came out August 15th, 2008 in October of 2007, I had done a workshop. Um, Janya Stout, who many of you might know, if you know Janya, um, uh, uh, Janya was at Fidelity. She was just this rock star wholesaler. And uh, her and I did an event with an auditor. And there were about 10 companies who showed up. And there were three companies in the audience at that point in time. And uh, I did a presentation to 2007 on fiduciary governance. And um, I prospected those three companies after for months, had a couple of meetings. I couldn't get them to move. And um, August 15th, my book comes out. I sent each one of those companies a copy. In two weeks, all three of them signed on 
as clients. <laughs> it was it was it was two ten million dollar plans and a three million dollar plan, and it wound up being seventy five thousand dollars in total revenue, fixed fees. And I've done fixed fees forever. And um, if you remember that time, in around October one of that year is when the financial crisis hit, and we were a lot smaller. And and those engagements started October one two thousand eight, and in the ensuing six months, our revenue on our private client side went down about $75,000. And we actually made it through, we annual, annualized. We right. made it through flat during the crisis of 2008 because of those three fixed fee engagements that I'd gotten, that I got because of that, that book. And that book then opened up, I got a lot of speaking engagements, it gave me a platform. It was a good marketing card to be honest with you. Um, and the latest book I wrote is much, much better. And it's based on 15, 16 years of experience. But what I would say is the reason to write a book, anybody can write a book, writing a, a nonfiction book, a business book is way easier than writing a fiction book because you have to create stuff there. I would just tell you the way I do it is I call it documenting my day. I just step back and I write through, you know, if I was sitting in a committee meeting, like what I just documented. And that's the way that I did it. I think um, writing books, in my opinion, it's obviously a differentiator. Not many people do it. So it stands, helps you stand apart. But I think a couple of other things. One, it galvanizes your thinking. Like you need to have an opinion and you need to think through it, right? That stuff's got, not going away. You're putting it out there. It's out there forever. So make sure I think that um, you have, an, you have uh, uh, thought through what you believe and why. We often talk about the why is more important than the what. And two, it just forces you to have an opinion. Like, I think that's where a lot of advisors fall down. The best advisors, right? The best advisors, at the end of the day, they do two things. They provide really strong leadership. They push clients to do things that clients wouldn't do on their own, left to themselves. Clients will take the path of least resistance. Um, and they're the chief accountability officer. They're making sure, like I look at it, my job is to make sure that we keep our promises that the record keeper, TPA, whatever, they keep their promises. And quite frankly, that the committee keeps their promises. And I, you know, I'm an interesting personality, but I've told uh, in every finals presentation and clients know, I'll say, look, I'm not a wallflower. Like I'm gonna push you to do the things that are gonna be uncomfortable, but that I believe are right for your employees. And I'm gonna have evidence to back it up. And you may not always agree, but I'm not gonna be scared to tell you the truth because if I wasn't telling you the truth, I wouldn't be doing my job as a fiduciary and you wouldn't be either. So I'm gonna be respectful of you because ultimately you make the final decision, but I'm not gonna be a wallflower because my job, just like leadership in your company, sometimes you have to make the hard decisions that you know are right, but are diff difficult nonetheless. And I really believe that, that you get massive credibility with your clients when you're not scared of them. And too many advisors are scared of their clients. Most advisors wanna get hired and stay, stay hired. Most record keepers, they wanna get hired and they wanna stay hired. For me, I'd rather drive outcomes for clients and, and I don't suffer fools very well. And so, you know, if, if uh, clients that, that um, don't wanna take my advice tend not to hire me because I'm, I'm, I'm a pain in the butt. Um, I'm a total pain in the butt, but my job is to push clients to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. And, and it served me well through, throughout my career. And I would encourage most of you, take a stand. And that's what writing a book or putting out thought leadership does is it gives you the ability to take a stand and to draw out insights. Clients want insights. That's what they want. That's what they want from you. That's powerful. Wow. 
Josh, so many great things, so many great ideas for us to try and do. Um, I'm blown away. Every time I talk to you, I just get more excited about just things that I need to improve on, but things that I can help other advisors do. I mean, that's, I think you get the same feeling as you talk to advisors, you see the same things that you've learned and done wrong and want to help them. And that's, that's what's so cool about our industry and kind of what this whole club is about is just coming together and helping each other. So with that, I want to, let me just say real quick. Yeah, go ahead. My heart is for the advisor community. I think that, that, Everybody's valuable in the, in the ecosystem, but the decisions, the outcomes that are going to happen 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now for, for participants are going to be directly correlated to how effective advisors are because advisors provide the strongest leadership to committees. And ultimately, it's the committees who make the decisions that drive those outcomes over time. So I have a huge heart for the advisor community. I do love our business. I love advisors. Um, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes over my career. I've done a lot of things and, and, and I'm good at certain things and I'm not good at other things. But, um, you know, you have the ability if you're willing to, to you know, have the courage and, and, and to, um, you know, really master your craft. Like advisors have the ability to shape massive outcomes over time for people. You can work for the thank yous you're never going to hear. So. Awesome. Thank you, Josh. I'm going to open it up. Uh, to the group. All right. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Now it's your turn. Go out and take action. Figure out what you learned from this podcast today that you will try on Monday that will help you win plans this year, this month, maybe even this week. I want you to take action so you will win. When you win, more people in these plans, more employees will win. That's our goal. If you need help, that's what the club is about. Join the Forum Club today. It's available. Go to forumclub.com. Hope to see you in there very soon. Take care.